Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I'm so thrilled to be with you today to start our summer series called Stories. I love talking with people, and I love hearing stories that change their lives. I remember uh, many years ago, I talked with a young man who was succeeding in life and business and marriage, and even though when he found out his story, he came from a terribly broken family upbringing, abuse, neglect. By the age of, well, by kindergarten, he was pretty much left to raise himself. And the story that changed his life was a Sunday school teacher. He walked into church by himself. She reached out to him. She believed in him. She made sure to look for him every Sunday to give him a five, to give him whatever. She went the extra mile to make sure he had food and clothing and opportunities that he couldn't have had otherwise. And she led him to faith in God. And it changed the entire trajectory of his life. I'm sure if I were to sit down with each and every one of you, and I would ask you what most grounded you, what set the positive direction for your life most. You probably all have some amazing stories. I've probably heard some of them. I'd love to hear all of them if I had the time. And some of you, for some of those stories, they're actually Bible stories that grounded you in your faith. And, and some of you who may not even be followers of Jesus, who are just kind of hanging around church or considering this whole faith thing or coming with a spouse, you may not even know it, but I'll bet some of the Bible stories actually impacted your life as well. Because the Bible is full of famous stories from which come a lot of cliches and wise phrases that our culture still uses today. One of the things that I love is actually looking at those phrases and how they're used in our culture. Did you know that the origin either started in Jesus or Jesus popularized these phrases, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is popularized because of Jesus. The whole phrase, the good Samaritan, all the wisdom that goes along with that, going the extra mile, cast the first stone, uh, blind leading the blind, the straight and the narrow, the wolves in sheep clothing. All of these are phrases that Jesus originated or popularized. Beyond that, the Bible is full of lots of other phrases like, did you know the drop in the bucket? It comes from the Bible. By the skin of your teeth or bite the dust. That one actually is kind of popularized by the Bible. In the twinkling of an eye. Eat, drink, and be merry comes out of the Bible. A fly in the ointment. Uh, for everything there is a season. Pride comes before a fall. And the whole concept of the idea of scapegoat, though all of those phrases find their origin or popularization in the stories of the Bible. They are enduring stories of wisdom that have crossed cultural and even religious lines for thousands of years. In this series, we have this intentional desire that even though school's out, that we don't want our spiritual growth to also be out. We want to still grow over the summer. And I think there's no better way to grow over the summer than to just reflect on these biblical stories whose power has spanned generations and crossed all cultural lines. Today, we start by looking at one of Jesus' parables. Now, a parable is different than an allegory. Where in an allegory, everything means something. Everything represents something. Parables are generally a little more narrow and focused than that. And actually, we run into problems when we try to allegorize parables. We tend to create problems and diverging from what Jesus is actually meaning and his intent in telling the story. Today's parable 
is actually one of the few that actually appears in three out of the four uh, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. In addition, this parable, which is often referred to as the parable of the sower, headlines the rest of the parables in all three Gospels in which it, in which it shows up. It stands out, I think, as perhaps maybe the most insightful, maybe the most important parable, because it deals with how the difficulties and the cares of this life keep us from walking in the abundant good that God desires for each one of us to experience. Now, last week we, we had the Memorial Day, you know, sacrificial love focus and all-in commitment focus to honor Memorial Day. And we talked about how without it, that kind of absolute commitment will never experience passion and purpose. And, and I got to admit, it was a really challenging message. Was, at least it was for me. I don't know about you. As we finished deciding what this series is going to be, we decided to start with this parable today because Jesus himself says about this parable, if you don't understand this, then you will not understand the rest of the parables and what it means to walk into the good and the power and the the beauty of the kingdom of God coming into our lives. And yet this is one of those those motivational speeches that that you, you kind of hear that Jesus gives, you know, those kind of motivational speeches that, are, that don't necessarily make you all feel that good. It's it's more of like, hey, all this abundant, all this great success is coming out, but you listen to this great person who's had all this success and they say, but you know what? Unless you pay attention to this stuff, and this stuff is not, you know, this is kind of tough. Unless you pay attention to this stuff, you're not going to ever get to that. So this message today that Jesus gives in this parable is not for the faint of heart. It's fascinating, uh, though, as well in this parable, because it's one of the very few also that Jesus tells the parable. And then he explains why he told it and what it means. So we're going to start today in the middle of Jesus' commentary on this where he talks about why he tells this parable. And what we're going to see is that the core of this parable actually asks us to wrestle with one really big question. And that question is, why is it that some people's lives exhibit boatloads of fruit, so much personal growth and change, so much impact on other people, and other people's lives not so much? Have you ever wondered that, wondered that question, thought about that question? I know I have. I've wondered, even on a very personal level at times, why is it so hard for something I don't like about myself to change when I see others with a similar issue who apparently change so much and so easily and I'm sitting here struggling and still haven't been able to get through that? See, when we feel like we're coming up on the short end of growth or the short end of fruitfulness in our life, I think sometimes we ask questions like, God, what's wrong with me? I mean, sometimes we even compare ourselves. We say, well, they aren't as talented or as moral or as gracious as I am, and they're having so much more fruit. Why are they having so much more fruit in their life, and why not me? Well, Jesus in today's parable isolates the primary reason for a lack of fruitful change and impact through our lives on other people in one thing. And Jesus says it's this. He says, when Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. We're going to unpack that in just a moment. And he goes on and says, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parable. He told them, well, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you in this parable. But to those who are on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And then Jesus said to them, 
Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So there are obviously some really, really strong, confusing, even off-putting statements in what Jesus just said in that text, isn't it? So let's quickly unpack that. Jesus is saying the issue of change in our lives comes down to hearing, listening, perceiving, understanding. And that getting the truth of this parable in our hearts is the primary thing that will help us understand all other parables and receive all other truth and abundance God wants to give in our lives. Understanding in this context, though, is not what we would oftentimes think of it. We oftentimes think of it just kind of this intellectual understanding. No, what, what this understanding is, is it's more so an assimilating of the truth into the way we think, feel, and act as a natural part of how we see life and what we do in life. So now, the off-putting part of what Jesus says there is all wrapped around his whole use of the word secret. And then he goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah saying, they may be, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And we, we read that and we go, really? God doesn't want us to know and be forgiven? Or at least he doesn't want certain people to know and be forgiven? That seems patently unfair, offensive, doesn't it? So to understand what is going on here, we need to understand first the word secret, and then we also need to understand and catch the tongue-in-cheek sarcasm in this Isaiah quote. So, see, we tend to think of secret as something being kept from us. But this word, the way Jesus is using it and what it would have meant to his listeners is probably maybe even better translated for us in terms of mystery. It refers to a mystery, something that is intriguing, something we don't quite understand, but it's, but it's there and it kind of motivates us to figure it out, to press into it, to solve it. And so if you look then at the Isaiah passage, Jesus is quoting, what God is doing in that context is he's actually mourning and grieving over how desperately blind the people are. So blind, so hard, so resistant, so caught up in evil that they can't even see the great, awesome gift being offered them of forgiveness. Another way to look at that, it's like offering a, a man who's dying of thirst a cool glass of pure water and he knocks it out of your hand, labeling you as evil for offering it. It's a grieving sarcasm from God who is offering such a good thing and yet the people say of his wisdom and grace and love that it is foolish and bad even. So Jesus is saying change and growth and fruitfulness in life starts in us hearing and perceiving and understanding the seeds of his grace and love in our life. And when we don't hear, when we don't receive it for what it is, we tend to start seeing things that God does and reject them and devalue them and treat them as trivial and sometimes evil, even label the good things he's offering us as bad. And therefore, we miss the obviously grand, good love that God is offering us. So the bottom line of this parable today is this. 
that Jesus is showing us when we struggle to find fruitfulness in our lives, when we struggle to change in an area of our lives, it isn't God who's the problem or withholding something from us or something out there in life to blame. It's actually the condition of our heart and our ability to hear and our ability to receive what he is sowing into us and what he wants to grow in us. This parable's main focal point is very, very personal. And it addresses the questions of why is it that some lives bear much fruit and others don't? And how do you and I need to prepare our hearts to listen and understand and appropriate God's truth and walk into the abundant fruit-bearing life that he is promising us, that he is trying desperately to give us? So let's go back and read the parable. Jesus says, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering his seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. And still other seed fell on the good soil. And it came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. What Jesus does is he identifies four types of soil which represent the four types of things that we have in our heart that go on in our heart and how they relate to us having the ability to hear or not hear, receiving or not receiving God's truth and blessing. I got to tell you, one of my favorite things uh, when I was growing up working on farms was getting the soil ready for planting was plowing, plowing. It was an awesome feeling to go into a field that was hard and had the remnants of last year's crop and then hours later look back and say, I just did that, a hundred acres. And it was a beautiful thing to see. Ground, a plot of land, smooth, soft, and ready to receive seed. Now farming in some respects like that is, is a simple job in many ways that is rewarding because you get to visibly see all that you've accomplished. Jesus takes what is simple and teaches us tremendously profound truth about what it takes to till our own hearts, to prepare our own hearts to receive his freeing truth and abundant life. And Jesus' disciples responded to this question, this, this parable saying, hey, cool, I know what you're talking about. We've all done that, but how does farming and soil apply to me? What does this look like? What am I supposed to take away from this? And so Jesus explains. Verse 14, he says, the farmer sows the word. So what Jesus is saying, again, this is all about, this parable is all about how each and every one of us respond to God's word in our lives. He says, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and he takes away the word that was sown in them. So Jesus is saying, some of us don't receive the word and hear it because our hearts are hard. I mean, first century Palestine was crisscrossed with paths. Both people and animals used these paths to transit between places. The more traffic, the harder the path was. So when farmers were out casting their seeds, especially along the edges of the fields, some of the seed would fall on these hard paths and birds would flock together and, and, and eat all that seed. The seed never made adequate contact long enough with the soil to germinate and bring the good that it was intended to bring. 
It would, and even if it did germinate, it was trampled underfoot. It was wounded and died. See, Jesus is talking to people all around, even to people here in church, all of us in some way and some time, who are unresponsive in our lives to God's Word, whether it be all of God's Word or just certain aspects of God's Word. I think, I think sometimes we think of hardness in a number of different ways. One way we think of it is belligerence. And I think that's true. Uh, often outspoken antagonism. I mean, we don't, uh, we don't want sometimes anything to do with God, whether it's holy or we don't want anything to do with God in a just a certain area of life. Like, God, don't tell me what to do with my money. Don't tell me what to do with my sex life. Don't tell me to do what, what is right about right to choice and abortion or, or any other issue. There, there's kind of a hardness in our hearts where we know what we want to know, and we frankly don't want to listen to God's Word if it disagrees with what we know. We know better than God. We want what we want. And we, in some of those instances, even argue with God, saying, God, your Word is actually not good. It's bad. What about the Bible ruffles your feathers or causes you to object or reject God's Word as truth? More than likely, there's hardness of heart there. Hardness can also be, though, something else. It can be the circumstances or beliefs that have left us all with kind of these hard and fast lenses through which we see the world. So in April, a photographer, social media advertising guy came to our home to take pictures of it to put it on the market because we were selling and downsizing. And he was really talkative, really interesting. I loved talking to him for like 45 minutes. About 15 minutes in, he asked me what I did for work, and I told him, and he immediately responded saying, well, you know, uh, I'm not a person of faith. I'm not at all interested in talking about that with, with friends or anyone. You know, that happens a lot. Uh, but then without me saying anything more, uh, he, he went on and said, you know, I was actually amazed uh, last week, which happened to be the week right before Easter, he said his social media uh, news feeds blew up with advertisements for church. And he said it was a bit annoying, but as a marketer, he found it kind of intriguing and interesting. He found it fascinating that so many churches would spend so much money on marketing. And this is what he said. He said, I had no idea that Easter would be such a big moneymaker for churches, but it obviously must be because of the advertising. I tried to reframe that in terms of saying, well, you know, it is kind of like the celebration of the biggest, you know, event in our Christian faith. And, you know, there's maybe some other reasons. But he came right back to it. He said he insisted the only explanation for that was churches going after money. So why? I can understand his perspective. I mean, I get it. But, but his inability to see God was affected by a hardened view of life that creates these lenses through which we filter everything. And his lenses were that all businesses, all people, are always about marketing and money, and church is a business, and therefore all about money. So instead of being open to the idea that there could be other motives like compassion and, and, and faith and spirituality, often uh, our, our view of life colors us so clearly that what we see everything through is this hardness of heart that doesn't allow us to hear or receive the meaning and the abundance and the value that God's Word is trying to bring to our life. We miss the blessing because all we see is the hardness. 
And then honestly, some hardness of heart, I think, is because we've been trampled on so much in life. We've been hurt so much. And the result is we just, we just live with this self-protective outer shell in life. We don't let anyone in. We don't know any other way to relate than to have this hard outer shell. It's the only way we find a sense of equilibrium and enough protection and peace. So we live with hardness in our lives. We come to Jesus wearied by difficulties and experiences which have produced kind of a numb confusion or a, a guarded fearfulness or a stubborn defensiveness in us, making it difficult for us to hear and receive the good Jesus offers. See, in this story, God is inviting us to open up, to trust Him, to give us comfort and healing, even when we grieve our pain and disappointments in life, to find a softness in our hearts on the other side of that. Jesus goes on to explain the second kind of heart soil. It's the shallow heart. And Jesus says this. He says, Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time when trouble and persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. <laughs> I was thinking about this. and uh, The first house Wendy and I had uh, many years ago, part of the lawn always died every year. I planted it every year, watered it. Uh, the first couple years during the cool time, it would start to grow, and then it would die when the summer heat hit. Uh, year two or three, I decided to build a privacy fence, and so... I got to that place in the lawn that always died and I stuck the post hole digger in and I, and I long story short, I, I, I discovered what was, I hit rock and what I discovered was the rock was at least a boulder six feet by eight feet wide. I never found all the edges of it. Uh, it was just a few inches below the surface and in fact, the only way I finished the fence that day was I found one place three, to, three feet away from where I wanted to put the post in that I could get a hole deep enough, so I put a post there, so I built a crooked fence. It was the only way to get a fence finished. What does this look like in our lives? Jesus says we receive the word with great joy. And don't we? I mean, what we hear, he loves me, he forgives me, he wants me to love like him. We are so inspired. That is so awesome. But when it gets difficult, when trials come, not so much. G.K. Chesterton, one of the greatest Christian voices of last century, put it this way. He said it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that Christianity has been tried and found difficult and left untried. Do you remember the, anybody remember the biosphere experiments in the desert of Arizona many years ago where they locked eight, eight people up in this artificial environment for two years to do ecological studies? Anybody remember that? Uh, one of the things they noted during that time was that the trees grew and they eventually started to droop, show weakness and break, unlike the, the, they did in the natural environment. And, and, the branches were weaker. One of the things they discovered was that without the stress of the winds causing them to sway back and forth, the trees did not become as strong as they needed to be. And when you think about it, that makes sense, right? I mean, when you work on strengthening your own body, stress is what causes that. You stress your muscles, it causes them to break down, and then they restore, repair, rebuild, and become stronger. The same thing was true with bones. A certain amount of jarring and stress causes our bones to be stronger and denser than if we don't exercise and don't do anything. Who would have thought that no pain, no gain has spiritual significance? Right? Like... Like you, I, I, I've been there before when faith 
and church stops feeling good, when the goosebumps are no longer there in worship or on our daily devotions, or we're working through something difficult and it just doesn't feel good, it's not really an encouraging time, and you're tempted to go to things that feel good, See, too often we run from the difficult feelings and the difficult situations. But love, anything worthy of change we pursue, it doesn't come easy. God may be calling you to love someone, and it's going to involve difficulty. It's going to involve conflict. Now, over the years I've met a lot of people who love to volunteer this information, and it's just, it's just part of their identity. They say, I'm terribly afraid of conflict. I avoid conflict at all costs. I, I, I just can't do conflict. Honestly, it's okay to struggle with conflict. It's, it's not pleasant, right? Many of us have stories and life experiences that make conflict scary. Some personalities struggle with conflict more than others. But if you've been saying you don't deal with conflict well and you avoid it at all costs for years and years and years, then you are dooming yourself to be a shallow Christian. Jesus repeatedly commands us to rejoice when conflict comes. So what's he mean by that? He means to see conflict as a positive opportunity for growth in your relationships, in your character, in your grace, in your ability to love in a deep way. You know, further, the sad thing about continually saying and being stuck in fear of conflict and constantly avoiding it at all costs is that the result of living life that way is going to be that you will pile far more experiences on top of everything you have to deal with that will give you even more reasons to be afraid of conflict. Because the things that sprout, uh, things that sprout up and break, relationships that sprout up and then disappoint you because of conflict will be multiplied if you are afraid of conflict and don't learn to deal with it well. Whereas if you learn and allow yourself to learn to face the winds of stress, to face the conflict, the difficult things well, you will become strong and you will move into abundance of blessing. I get it. I think we've all struggled with this at some point. Even on a broader scale, we've all seen people, we've all been that person who got really excited about the work of God in their life or the challenge to grow in an area of their life. So we got goosebumps. We were all in. We were all motivated. Then we've all been there a few weeks later where something hard hits and we're gone. It doesn't happen. Even further on this type of soil, I think the kingdom of God wants to touch us in our entire being, in our will, in our emotions, and in our intellect. And I think that sometimes in life we, we tend to be people who get on board emotionally with something, but, but our will isn't there. We feel God's love and, and we're excited and of Jesus' call on us to love others extravagantly, but we haven't surrendered our will in some areas and it gets in the way. I remember talking with someone who was so excited about how God so extravagantly forgave them, but their will was unyielding in offering that same forgiveness to someone who had hurt them. And it held them back. It left them in bitterness. I've talked with many people who felt that they had a calling to commit to a certain ministry that God was saying, this is what I should volunteer and this is what I should do with my life. This is the difference I could make in life. 
but they were unwilling to surrender their finances and surrender the way they wanted to live their time. This rock just under the surface of their will kept them shallow. Sometimes it's the opposite. Our intellect and our will are convinced that something is right, but our emotions tank us. I've watched multiple people flame out because they wanted the God, they felt like God was leading them into something. And and when resistance resistance comes and complaints come and it doesn't feel good, and even though they know this is right and their will is surrendered to do God's will, their negative emotions tank them. Something's not surrendered there to God. There's a hard thing there under the surface. Lots of young Christians lose their faith going to college. They go there excited emotionally. Their their wills are committed to following God. But just under the surface of all that, they haven't done the hard work of intellectually going deep and understanding what they believe and why they believe it and owning that process. So just under the surface, there's a rock that keeps them shallow and keeps the fruit from happening in their life. Whatever the rock is just below the surface, Jesus is inviting each of us to go deep in our faith. But that's harder to do today than it ever has been, isn't it? Because our world says today, being too committed to anything equals fanaticism, and fanaticism equals danger. But Jesus says, be all in. If you want to follow me, be a person who's deep enough with no hardness of sin, no sin hidden that can't be touched and changed. See, the test of whether our faith is shallow or deep is found in how we handle trials and conflict. Only when we face that difficulty well with the grace of God and with his church can we experience the blessings that God is putting right there, offering us, sowing seeds for in our life right now abundantly. Third type of soil that reflects our heart is the distracted heart. And Jesus explains that saying, still others like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of the wealth, and the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Jesus says the weeds of this life are the worries of this life, our divided interests. Now here's the deal. Weeds take no effort to cultivate. If you have a lawn or a garden, you just do nothing with it, it will be all weeds in abundance at some point. We all know that, right? So part of what Jesus is saying here is if you want to grow deep and have abundance in your life, you need to diligently cultivate the soil of your heart. It doesn't happen on its own. Indeed, the only thing you have some control over in life, even though we think we have control over a lot, the only thing you have some control over in your life is how soft and deeply cultivated your heart is to receive the seeds of God's word and his presence in your life. You can't control the weather. You can't control the circumstances that come your way. You can't control whether the seed will actually sprout and grow. All you have some control over is how soft or hard, how deep or how shallow, how focused and settled your heart is to follow God, or how distracted and divided your heart is about following God. And it's most natural for all of us to just want to rest, to pursue recreation, to make money and spend money on ourselves. It's most natural for us to worry. 
It's most natural for us to seek sexuality out to make us feel good. It's most natural to be angry or fearful. It's actually unnatural to live with the depth of self-denying, sacrificial love that God says we must if we're going to follow Him. It's actually more natural to fulfill every personal desire we have in the way we want when we want. To cultivate a soft, fertile, weed-free heart takes a measure of discipline and self-restraint. Think about it. It's not easy to tithe. It's not easy to give 10% of your money to God's work through His church. It's, it's not easy to volunteer and serve, especially when it's difficult. It's not easy to be committed to a small group of people. There are a lot of times in life I would rather not tithe. I'd rather spend that money on a vacation or some entertainment. It's unnatural when you are tired from work and you get home and you just want to veg out to get in the car and drive across town to your small group and on top of that then be fully engaged to see how God wants to invite you to grow as well as being there to encourage others and support and comfort and encourage others in their growth as well. It's hard when you are starting to have children to stay engaged relationally with a church knowing your kids might come to church and they might catch a cold from another kid at church or at the small group or or wherever you're going. I, I can't tell you how many young couples I've seen who begin to have children who check out from groups and volunteering and so much of church because of the pressure of young kids and the fear of them getting sick. And honestly, that's tragic because that pattern is rarely reversed in people's lives later. I can tell you the rich reward of staying engaged. Years ago, when I was pastoring in Tulsa, the church was about 70%, 20 or 30-something, newly married, just all starting to have kids. We had 40 babies in one year. It was, it, was, it was wild. Now, 25 years later, when we go back to visit in Tulsa like we did for my daughter's college graduation a month or so ago, those relationships are still some of the most rich, enduring relationships, of our, the richest of our lives. Why? Because we stayed engaged, even with our kids. We just put up with a little more chaos in the room when we were trying to have small groups and be in a church. I, I get, please understand, I, I get the fear. I get the pressure. I get the tiredness that comes when kids get sick and you don't get any sleep. And I get the pressure of all that living in a two-income household. I've been there. I've done that with three kids. I understand that pressure. Allow me to lovingly suggest staying away from church or small group because of fear of colds or the difficulty of your kids is a weed that's going to choke out quality of life that God wants to bring to you. The pattern you set now as young families tends to endure. And trust me, it's not any easier when your kids are in elementary or middle school to change that pattern and re-engage faith. In fact, it's probably harder to do it then. So, after killing my actual lawn year after year at my home, when I knew we were going to come up on the time for downsizing, I decided to hire a professional company to do all the fertilizing and weed treatment of my lawn since I kept killing it every year. They did an excellent job, but the number one thing they told me was cut the grass weekly or more often and cut it on the highest setting your mower has with a sharp blade. Because the best defense against weeds is a tall, thick, healthy lawn. 
But it takes cultivation. It takes effort. It takes letting things grow deep and thick in you. It takes commitment, not divided interests and distractions that pull our hearts in lots of directions. So question, which of these three kinds of hearts is the one you are most vulnerable to? We all are vulnerable to them. Which is the most vulnerable for you? The last type of heart and soil Jesus talks about is the good, soft heart. He says, others like seeds sown on good soil hear the word, accept it. They take it in themselves. They make it a part of who they are, and they produce a crop some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. I've heard people say a good return on most crops back in Jesus' day was eightfold. So understand, when Jesus says 30, 60, 100-fold, this is a huge wow factor for his listeners to hear him say that. A good heart is one who is open to God to let God go deep. No rocks hidden, no areas reserved, no untouchable topics or areas that God can't touch and change, no hardness of grief or dismay or hurt that we have not left, that we have not processed with God. A good heart is a person who has one focus that drives every other thing they do in life. And that is to know and do the will of God regardless of the cost. To think and believe about morality like Jesus no matter what our culture says and how challenging that makes our relationships. And want to want to do God's will regardless of whether it's easy or difficult. What that leaves us as our job as followers of Jesus is Our job is to voraciously seek out knowing and integrating God's word into your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. To let God and his word break up those hard areas and expose those rocks in our life and remove them. Your job is to fully receive God's word into your life and then over time let that seed grow and become mature. Because implied in this is harvests don't happen overnight. We know that. Waiting can be hard. Jesus, even in this parable, invites us to live life with the long view in mind. And the person who lives like that, he says, will see fruitfulness, your own life changing for the better, and fruitfulness in the impact of your life in a positive way on other people that will go far beyond anything you can imagine. This message is really challenging, isn't it? But we didn't fully discuss the identity of the sower. The sower in this parable is Jesus. And he's sowing the seeds liberally on all soil types. See, when we see God as a sower, it can become incredibly meaningful for us. Uh, In our own thinking, it's wasteful, right, for a farmer to throw a lot of seed away on soil that's not going to produce. But the farmer in this parable, he is so hopeful that he's willing to do it anyway. The cool thing is Jesus is so hopeful because he knows that whatever soil is in your heart right now, that when you respond to the grace of God, you can become a deep, soft, fertile soil with abundance being produced in your life. No matter what the condition of your heart is right now, Jesus is just throwing as much grace and as much seed your way as he can because he's so consumed in loving you with a desire that you be reconciled and that your life live in the abundance you long for it to live in. 
So as we respond to God and the seeds of his love and his kindness that he throws our way every day, no matter where you're at in life, the message is that every single person in this room can bear much fruit. So how do we respond today? If your heart is any of these other three besides a good soft heart, what keeps you what keeps you from having the kind of soil in your heart that is fruitful and productive? If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're ready to make that jump and ready to receive him, then make that step today. I invite you to come down after we're done with service in a few moments to just talk with one of the prayer people and, and just have them help you take that step and encourage you in that uh, today. If your heart is hard, if you recognize shallowness or distractedness in your heart, then I'm just going to invite you to confess that to God and later today at some point confess it to a friend and talk about it. And then begin to take regular steps to soften and prepare your heart to receive God's word. Even today as we take communion, we remember how Jesus gave everything for us. He poured out everything for us. He didn't, he didn't hold anything back. He's so outrageously generous that no matter how far you are from him or how close you are to him, he has already given his all for you and he's continuing to give his all for you. Jesus is liberally pouring out his love for you even right now. So as you come and receive communion, just maybe ask for forgiveness. If you've got a shallow heart or a hard heart, and just ask him to help you in that. And ask him to pour out his life in you and his abundance in you and help you learn to live in this way. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you for your perfect sacrifice of giving your life for us. Thank you for being amazingly patient, extravagantly patient with us. Lord, would you just come and would you show us the places of our heart that have become hard? Would you help us confess those things to you? Would you show us where the cares of this world, the worries of this world distract us from what is really, really, really important, what we really long for all along? Would you help take those hidden parts of our life that we have not surrendered, that we're even fearful to surrender? Would you help remove those from our life, that our lives could enjoy the fruitfulness that you so greatly desire for us. Would you come by your Holy Spirit and encourage us in this moment to just give everything to you and to receive the seeds that you are planting in us and enjoy the harvest that you're going to bring of life and beauty and goodness in our lives, even as we celebrate this most holy thing of communion and remember how much you love us, Lord. Come, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.